The text for this morning's sermon is found in Romans chapter 12, the first eight verses. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. And since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let each exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith, if service, in his serving, or he who teaches, in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. If you were God and you knew that you had all the power and all the right to put a level of faith into people that was just where you wanted it, and uh, give them all the grace they needed and to give them all the gifts they needed. And, and if you had the will to perfect them and make their faith great, wouldn't you just do it? Wouldn't you just on a straight line take people where they are and perfect them and get it done and move them beyond their imperfections just like that? If you could, wouldn't you? Sort of like my asking Benjamin the other night, I said, don't, don't you think, Ben, that uh, you ought to go to bed earlier tonight, big day tomorrow? I think if I were you, I'd try to get more sleep tonight. He said, well, that's just another reason why you're not me. <laughs> <laughs> and God says to me right now, well, if that's the way you would do the work of sanctification, that's just another reason why you're not me. God doesn't do it that way. He doesn't do it that way. Why not? It's the way we would do it, I presume. We get mad at him sometimes for not doing it that way. There are reasons why God does not take every individual in a straight line catapult from inception to perfection like that by his omnipotent power. And the reason is not that he doesn't have the right to do it because of our free wills. That's not the reason. This text will plainly teach that he has the right to give measures of faith differently. He does have the right to dispense grace differently. He does have the right to give gifts differently. He has the right to do what he will do. The reason he doesn't take us in a straight line immediately to perfection is different than that. We'll see, I believe, one of the reasons. There are probably more reasons than I could begin to know, given the fact that he's God and the world is complex. But I think this text gets at one reason why God doesn't do it that way. Now, we'll see the reason before we we get to the end. But I want us to focus on verse three here, especially. 
I think the reason has to do with the nature of the body of Christ as a corporate reality which God is bringing through their mutual interactions towards corporate perfection and Christ-likeness rather than thinking of the church as little individuals here and there, all of them on their individual private trajectories toward perfection. If that's your conception of what God's doing in the world, that each individual just moving on their solitary little line towards their goal of individualistic perfection, then you're going to get on God's case a lot why yours isn't going faster, probably. But if you have a mind that this idea of moving towards perfection is a corporate reality, that God isn't just after individual perfect people, one there and one there, he's after a corporate Christ-likeness, that involves our work on each other and not just God's work on us, and that the process may be tangled and a lot slower and more indirect, then you might back off and not say, God, why don't you do it this way? And say, maybe God has a, has a beautiful work of art in mind here that I hadn't even thought of. Verse 3, let's read it. For through the grace given to me, I say to every one of you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Now, I think this verse is the main point of this unit from, say, 3 to verse 6. And the main point is don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to. Rather, think with sober judgment. And what I want to talk about this morning is what is the sober judgment? I know what it's the opposite of now, but what is it? Because the main point of this text is surely to move us on down into spiritual gifts in verses 6 to 8 so that we begin using our gifts to minister to each other that the body is built up. But this sound judgment, this sound judgment in verse 3 is very crucial to the exercise of our gifts. Note the connection between verse 2 and verse 3. Verse 2 is a very familiar one. You've heard it twice read from this pulpit already now this morning. Namely, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So minds are important. And then verse 3 says, have a sound judgment. Think not highly, but think towards sound judgment. So you've got renewed mind in verse 2, and I think you have a specific instance of that renewed mind in verse 3, namely how you think about yourself, about grace, about faith, and about gifts. And how you think about those will make a tremendous difference in how you exercise them and how the body grows and is built up. So my main question this morning is, what is the sound judgment of verse 3? Let me just step back and put in a parenthesis here about this whole series of messages. We're in a series of messages about the church, about the body of Christ, and our goal is to find out for the 20th century, for Minneapolis, for Bethlehem, what does it mean to be church, to do church? Is church mainly a series of events that we come to and listen? Or is church a series of gatherings where we meet to minister? Now, I say... Is it mainly the one or the other? Because I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think there are listening events in the church that's healthy. But I, I think on the basis of what we're seeing in these texts, that the main meaning of doing and being church is meetings to minister, not 
meetings to listen. Meetings to minister, not just meetings to listen. Which means that what goes on outside of this 30-minute block of church where I do a lot of talking and you listen is not all there is and maybe not even the main thing in the society that's needed, but that there is a doing of ministry in various forms and gatherings where each of you, with your specific grace, ministers uniquely to another in the body, gives a unique witness to the world, gives a unique tribute to God, and that that ministry is what church is. And this is an equipping event, mobilizing, motivating, stirring up event that isn't an end in itself, and that to come here and listen is not to have done church, and then you go off and do the rest of your life, which is not church. I think that's the direction the texts are taking us. And I think this text today will increase our grasp of what it means to be and do church in terms of ministering to each other. So let's ask the question, what is the sound judgment of verse three? Let me sum it up and then I'll try to unpack it with three observations. The the essence of this sound judgment is that it is the opposite of pride. That's the first thing we know about it from verse three. Don't think more highly than you ought to think, but alternative to pride, think with sober, sound judgment. So the first thing you can say about this expression of the renewed mind is that the the action of the renewed mind is humility. It is a it's the opposite of pride. And here's the rest of what I would say to define it. It's a it's a mindset that is permeated by the awareness that grace is a gift, faith is a gift, and all the gifts are gifts. The mindset that is permeated by the fact that God is the giver of grace, God is the giver of faith, God is the giver of gifts, not we. They don't come out of us, they don't come from us, they come from God, and that profoundly affects the way you think. It profoundly affects your mindset and the soberness of your judgment regarding yourself, your grace, your gifts, your faith. Here's the way I would uh, put it in a nutshell. This sober judgment means a judgment based on God's gracious freedom as a giver and our humility. When, when God's grace and freedom mingle with a proper humility in our thinking, we think with sober, realistic judgment about ourselves and about everything else. That's what I think Paul is trying to get into our heads in order that we might serve each other rightly. Now, let me try to show you how he unpacks it in three steps. Number one. Paul unpacks this idea of a sober judgment by giving himself as an example in verse three of humble thinking about his ministry. Verse three starts like this for through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly than he ought to think. In other words, before Paul gives an instruction here concerning how they ought to think. And how they ought to be, he becomes aware that he's doing something that could be very presumptuous. 
Here he is. He's never been to Rome. He's never met these people. He's telling them how they ought to think and how they ought to act. What right does he have? And his answer is, I am speaking by the grace given to me. I didn't choose to be an apostle. Grace assaulted me on the Damascus Road. It rescued me from my darkness and my destruction. It brought me into an office called apostle. It gave me authority and grace and love to minister to you. I do not speak from myself. I speak from Christ. He has obligated me. I'm constrained to speak. I perish if I don't speak. Grace is why I speak. That's what he's doing. His, his first way is to model for the church the mindset that is sober, namely, I recognize that everything I am and do is by grace. Chapter 15, verse 15, he puts it like this. I have written very boldly to you on some points. So he's aware of his boldness. He's almost self-conscious in this. I mean, he is self-conscious in this letter. I've written very boldly to you to remind you again because of the grace that was given to me by God. Same phrase. His boldness is flowing not from some innate right or some innate gift or some innate intelligence. It's flowing because he's been blessed by grace. Grace has come upon him. Grace sustains him. Grace fills him. And what he teaches and preaches at, at Rome to the Romans is the overflow of grace. That's part of a sober mindset. To think the opposite is not to think with sober judgment, but to think too highly of himself. Verse six shows that he's putting himself in a category with all the believers on this score. Verse six says, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Now, that's the same phrase, grace given to us. Verse three, it was I speak because of grace given to me. Verse six is you minister because of grace given to you. We're all in the same category, namely we are recipients of grace. We are beggars before grace. What we are, we are by grace. Nobody should think of himself highly in this regard. Grace means God gives, we receive and you don't boast in that. You don't elevate yourself because of that. You elevate God. When you are what you are by the grace of God, God gets the glory for everything you do. That's the point. That's sober judgment about Paul's own calling. He's an example for us. Now, let me tell you what effects this had on me, what I, effects I want it to have on me. I think it's intended to have this effect on all of us. Three effects of a mindset that's aware that everything we have is by grace. Number one, peace of mind. At whatever level of giftedness or faith or grace you are, peace of mind. Because grace is grace. I mean, just think of it. What you are, what gifts you have, what measure of faith you have, where you are in the body is grace. That means it's good for you. God's will is good toward you. He's on your side. That's the meaning of grace. You are what you are by grace. It's just an awesome thought that grace is God's way of showing that he's on your side. And it may not be the gift you would have asked for. It may not be the level of faith you would have asked for. It may not be the configuration of grace. But it's good for you because God loves you. Grace gives peace of mind. You can rest and you can say, OK, if what I am, I am by the grace of God and I'm called to minister 
from this, then I will rest. I will not be anxious. I will not fret. The second effect it has is that it makes us humble. Grace not only means that God is for you, it means you don't deserve the fact that he's for you. And therefore, it humbles us. Romans eleven six defines grace like this. If it is by grace, it is no longer by works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Grace, by definition, means what you have, you didn't earn. What you received, you didn't work for. You didn't merit. Grace means we have to be humble if we're thinking with sober judgment about grace. Grace means we could not ever have earned anything God gave us. It is all gift, totally. And thirdly, not only are we given peace, not only do we become humble, but we have power. Peace, humility, and power, because it's God's, God's, God's grace. When God's grace comes, it's God moving in on you. Grace is not just tolerance or lenience for sin. Grace is a power that moves into your life, lifts you, strengthens you, holds you, and moves through you to others so that there's power flowing. No matter how humble you are, no matter how broken you are, no matter how reliant you are, or precisely because you are humble and broken and reliant, power is flowing through you. So, in summary then, on this first point, Paul shows what the sober judgment is by giving himself as an example of a grace recipient and says that everything he speaks, everything he does in the ministry, he does because he has been given grace with all of its peace, with all of its humility and with all of its power. Secondly, Paul illustrates this mindset, this sober way of thinking by teaching us that faith is a gift. Let's read verse three again. I say to every one of you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment. Now, here it comes. This is the closest we have to the content of the sound judgment to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. If you come to terms with the fact that your measure of faith is a gift of God, whether high or low, you will have a sound judgment about yourself. If you reject the truth that your measure of faith is a gift from God, you will have unsound judgment about yourself and about your faith and about grace. Now, some people, perhaps in the Rome in Rome, were saying, and I know some say today, well, grace may be a gift. I mean, your first point is is right on. Grace may be a gift, but faith is my act by which I receive grace. And if it's big or little, that's my doing. And therefore, I may think high or low of myself because of my performance of faith. Now, that will not fit this text. You can't get that from this text. In fact, I don't think this text will allow that to stand because it says God has measured to each a measure of faith. God gives grace and God gives the faith by which we receive the grace. And somebody might say, OK, OK, how about if we just say that God gave faith at the beginning of my Christian walk like he did to everybody the same 
and then we're responsible totally for advancing in faith so that if it becomes big, that's our doing. And if it stays little, that's our problem. And therefore, again, we are the ones who should think highly or lowly of ourselves according to what we were able to achieve. It won't work. It just won't work. The, the text says God has allotted to each a measure of faith, literally to each as God measured a measure, meaning different measures for different people, measured a measure of faith. Now, if you want to see this confirmed, drop down to verse six and you'll see a specific application of it to prophecy, the gift of prophecy. And the same thing can be said of every other gift. Verse six says, let each exercise his gifts accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. Now, that's just a reference back up to verse three, where it said God measures to each a measure of faith. And once you have your measure of faith, you are to use your gifts at least up to that measure of faith. Believe that much in God's power to work through you in prophecy or in serving or in exhortation. Faith is a gift from God. So, so Paul's first two points are, number one, sound judgment is judgment permeated by the fact that we are what we are by the grace of God. Grace comes from God. We didn't earn it. We didn't merit it. The second point now is that we have differing measures of faith in this church, in the body of Christ, and those differences are from God. They're from God. Both the grace is a gift and the faith to receive it is a gift. Therefore, I must not think highly of my faith or highly of my grace as though I did it. First Corinthians four, seven is probably the most sweeping indictment of thinking highly like that of all the verses in the Bible. It goes like this. First Corinthians four, seven. What do you have? That you did not receive. Answer nothing. And if you received it, why do you boast as though it were not a gift? Everything we have is a gift. We've mentioned grace and we've mentioned faith. This just blew me away last night as I was going to sleep. I, I just decided to spend a few minutes cataloging what that was in my life. My, my faith is a gift. All the grace in my life is a gift. My wife is a gift. My children are gifts. My home is a gift. My health is a gift. My ministry is a gift. My colleagues in the ministry are gifts. My health is a gift. This body is a gift. This land and this country with its freedoms are gifts. Everything I have is a gift. My suffering is a gift. My frustrations is a gift. The pains in my marriage and my parenting are gifts. They're all gifts because God loves me. And works everything together for good because he has called me according to his purpose. Everything is gift. There is no occasion for boasting save in one thing. Let him who boasts, boast, finish it. In the Lord. God is the center of our boasting. Do not think more highly of yourself than is necessary to think. The literal translation. The point is, think highly of the one who gives grace. Think highly of the one who gives faith. And now, thirdly, think highly of the one who gives gifts differently.
Do not begrudge his wisdom in endowing you differently from the person sitting next to you. If you have much, know it's because you're to serve downward. If you have little, know it's because you're to grow upward through other service. Do not be puffed up in your gift or be depressed in your gift, nor in your faith, nor in your grace. The point of all of these texts is to get the glory for God. That third point comes from verse six again. Let me read it. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, you have gifts. All of you have gifts and they differ from the person sitting next to you. God is a God of diversity. He means for gifts to be different. He does not mean for us to be the same. It is God who differentiates the gifts because God differentiates the grace and God differentiates the faith. He gets the glory. And the other point in this third part here is, is that we have these gifts in the context of a body, not in the context of a contest. If you're in a contest, a game, your differences are highlighted because you're trying to beat each other. And the one who probably has the stronger or the faster gifts will win. And you beat the other person. You get the blue ribbon, they get the whatever the other color is that, that you get if you're not first. Now, in the body, they, you don't, it doesn't work that way. The ear does not try to beat the eye. The hand does not try to beat the foot. Both are teaming up to get the person across the line to get out of danger or to get into reward. The point of the body is that the differentiated gifts don't compete. They minister to one another. So let me go back to the question I began with. If God has the right and the ability, which he does, to perfect us, to bring us to great faith and perfect love, just like that, why doesn't he do it? Why doesn't he just take an individual like John Piper and so zap him with omnipotent, transforming power that tomorrow morning I wake up perfect with never a sin in my life, never a nuance of any kind of irritability out of my mouth, total service, total humility, total graciousness, no flaws, period. God could do that. He's God. Now, why doesn't he do that? The answer I think we've seen is that we are not merely solitary individuals on a trajectory towards individualistic perfection. We are a body. And God means for this body not just to be solitary people moving in straight lines towards separate perfections. He means for the differentiation of grace and the differentiation of faith and the differentiation of gifts to flow this way in such a way that we build each other up toward that corporate Christ likeness. Let me give you a closing illustration of my wife's rugs. Noel makes rugs and along a lot of other things she makes. She's always making something and uh, she crochets these rugs about this big out of big thick pieces of cloth and uh, I was thinking about these rugs as I got to this point in my sermon, thinking, good night, there's an easier way to make a rug, for goodness sakes. Just take a couple of strips of cloth and make sure they're the same length, lay them beside each other, glue them or stitch them or, you know, and just, just lay them down and stand on them. That's what a rug's for, right? And God could do it that way. He could just say, just, here's a strip, here's a piper strip, and 
Here's a David strip and here's a Greg strip. Just just lay out the strips and perfect them, for goodness sakes, and do your thing. You know, it's... But, but as I watch Noel sitting in the living room with her, her big fat needle about that big around and uh, she's knitting or uh, crocheting and she gets a piece going. It looks like it's getting somewhere. It's about this long. And, and suddenly, instead of getting somewhere, it, it arcs back and goes through. And there's this little other piece back here that was almost forgotten. She goes through there and hooks something around, pulls it out and then goes and tries to make a little for it and then goes back. And I just watched and I said, this is really remarkable. This is so slow. <laughs> but, but when it's done, some people actually give her $40 for one of those rugs. Because they're beautiful. Now, God could get it done faster, but... He's just evidently doing something different than we think he's doing. Those of you who have more are like that, like that stitch that's about three inches ahead and looks like you're getting somewhere. And suddenly, by grace, through your gift, you arc back through that little forgotten loop that you can't even hardly see. And you catch it and you hook it and you bring it back and it fits then. It's perfect. It's beautiful. It did. It, it works. And then... Maybe even, I don't know how this all works, but it just keeps moving farther and farther and gets bigger and bigger and more beautiful. I think that's the picture we need in our minds. God does not mean to take you on a straight line trajectory towards perfection. He means to weave you together with other people's lives so that you are affected by them and, and you affect them. And the, when I walked out of here, Having given this illustration in the first service, Doug Oyen came up to me and he said, you know, in my life, uh, one of the effects of all that looping and interaction is that a lot of rough edges get knocked off. And I said, yeah, that just changes the metaphor a little bit. That's exactly right. So God evidently believes that in this process of moving towards corporate beauty and corporate Perfection, something greater is being achieved for his glory than if we all just soared single handedly without having to worry about anybody else. We were perfected overnight without having to be involved in each other's lives and bear each other's burdens and minister to each other's needs and groan under the burden that we are for each other. God means to accomplish something good through that. And I commend you to each other to do that. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, as the prayer team stand at the front here now, ready to pray with anybody who feels a need to, to have their gift strengthened or stirred up or discovered, or perhaps to have courage to talk to someone this week that needs to be here next Sunday, or who feels like their little loop has been forgotten and Nobody has hooked back in and made it secure in the fabric of the body. Bring those people to the prayer teams, I pray. And strengthen us as a church. May all the words that we share in this sanctuary now and in the commons and in our homes this day build faith. And may those who have much serve those who have little. And may those who have little grow into those who have much until we attain the corporate likeness of Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.